Uh, here we are back again, Mike and Paul doing The Racial Contract uh, by Charles W. Mills, and the podcast is called Political Theory and um, Other Stuff. We're still in the details. The section is called uh, The Racial Contract Has to Be Enforced Through Violence and Ideological Conditioning. Paul, do you want to take her away? All right, let's do it. The social contract is, by definition, classically voluntaristic, modeling the polity on a basis of individualized consent. What justifies the authority of the state over us is that we, the people, agreed to give it that authority. On the older feudal patriarchal model, by contrast, the model of Sir Robert Filmer, Locke's target in the second treatise, people were represented as being born into subordination. The legitimacy of the state derives from the freely given consent of the signatories to transfer or delegate their rights to it, and its role in the mainstream moralized-slash-constitutionalist version of the contract, uh, Lockean-slash-Kantian, is, correspondingly, to protect those rights and safeguard the welfare of its citizens. The liberal democratic state is then an ethical state, whether in the minimalist, night-watchman Lockean version of enforcing non-interference with citizens' rights, or in the more expansive redistributive, <laughs> redistributivist version of actively promoting citizens' welfare. In both cases, the liberal state is neutral in the sense of not privileging some citizens over others. Correspondingly, the laws that are passed have as their rationale this jur- juridical regulation of the polity for generally acceptable moral ends. Yep. Uh, the idealized model of the liberal democratic state has, of course, been challenged from various political directions over the past century or so. The recently revived Hegelian moral critique from the perspective of a competing, allegedly superior ideal a communitarian state seeking actively to promote a common conception of the good, the degraded version of this in the fascist corporatist state, the anarchist challenge to all states as usurping bodies of legitimized violence, and what has been the most influential radical critique up till recently, the Marxist analysis of the state as an instrument of class power so that the liberal democratic state is supposedly unmasked as the bourgeois state, the state of the ruling class. My claim is that the model of the racial contract shows us that we need another alternative, another way of theorizing about and critiquing the state, the racial or white supremacist state, whose function inter alia is to safeguard the polity as a white or white dominated polity, enforcing the terms of the racial contract by the appropriate means and when necessary, facilitating its rewriting from one form to another. Yeah, um, this is where everything gets real murky for me. Because I just see all, like, I don't understand, I guess, and I'm sure this will be explained more, why that has to be separate from the Marxian critique, if you will. Like, if the bourgeois class is generally tied up in being white supremacists, there's still the bourgeois class or, you know, the the class in power. So I don't see why they have to uh, divulge from each other so much. Like, if you have a common oppressor. Um, and, and that's not to take away anything that like, yes, there is very clearly a racial side to all of this. But I, I think, and maybe this is where I'm short-sighted um, from what I know about Marxian critique, if you will, is that I think that they uh, share some common goals as far as power structures. Yeah, and I don't understand why it can't be like the racial contract is um, a tool maybe a substrate. For- a substrate, and then on top of that, we have the the Marxist critique. Um, yeah, and that's one of those things that, like, 
if we don't find where he talks about it in the book or we feel like he doesn't, it would be uh, a dream of mine at some point to be able to talk to him and, and ask him questions such as that, you yeah. know. No, for sure. And and keep in mind, this is 1998. Yeah. We haven't read any of his other stuff. We haven't read any comments he's made about the book uh, uh, looking back on it. So it's quite possible that even if he doesn't cover it in the book, he addresses it somewhere else. Yeah, and I, like I said, I might not even understand what is really being gotten at. Um, although it seems pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say there's, there's – I mean it seems straightforward to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, the liberal democratic state of classic contractarianism abides by the terms of the social contract by using force only to protect its citizens, who delegated this moralized force uh, to it so that it could guarantee the safety not to be found in the state of nature. Uh, all a totally parenthesized sentence. Uh, this was, after all, part of the whole point of leaving the state of nature in the first place. By contrast, the state established by the racial contract is by definition not neutral, since its purpose is to bring about conformity to the terms of the racial contract among the subperson population, which will obviously have no reason to accept these terms voluntarily, since the contract is an exploitation contract. An alternative, perhaps even superior formulation, might be it is neutral for its full citizens who are white, but as a corollary, it is non-neutral toward the non-whites, whose intrinsic savagery constantly threatens reversion to the state of nature, uh, bubbles of wilderness within the polity, as I suggested. Of necessity, then, this state treats whites and non-whites, persons and subpersons, differently, though in the later variants of the racial contract, it is necessary to conceal this difference in seeking first to establish and later to reproduce itself. The racial state employs the two traditional weapons of coercion, physical violence and ideological conditioning. Uh, just to beat some dead horses some more, uh, once again, I just, I feel like from what I understand about Marxian theory, that it would be totally against this as well that like the end result would be that this is no longer an element of society um but wait wait the end result what do you mean the end result this wouldn't be a the end result of you know um decommodifying labor and things of that nature you know like spreading the means of production around things of that nature um i think would inherently uh address these problems of inequality and inequity and would uh, reassign a lot of that material wealth uh, appropriately and not on a racial basis, to the best of my knowledge. Yep. And, and that's, like yep. I said, to the best of my knowledge. And, and once again, not to say, like, I agree with everything that is being said here. Obviously, especially in Western history, um, so much of everything that has been constructed is based off of, you know, the concepts of this racial contract as well. I agree with you. I think they are com- the two um, framings are compatible yeah they 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 seem to me to be compatible and i'm confused as to why they are not yes in the early phase of establishing global white supremacy overt physical violence was of course the dominant face of this political project the genocide of native americans and the conquest of the two continents and of aborigines in australia the punitive colonial wars in africa asia and the pacific the incredible body counts of slaving expeditions the middle passage seasoning and slavery itself uh, i'm not super familiar with seasoning so seasoning's just like it's like uh breaking uh a horse but you're breaking a slave so you just like starve them or like underfeed them and beat them into submission totally disgusting okay 
the state-supported seizure of lands and imposition of regimes of forced labor. In the expropriation contract, the subpersons are either killed or placed on reservations so that the extensive daily intercourse with them is not necessary. They are not part of the white polity proper. In the slavery and colonial contracts, on the other hand, persons and subpersons necessarily interact regularly so that the constant watchfulness for signs of subperson resistance to the terms of the racial contract is required. If the social contract is predicated on voluntarized compliance, the racial contract clearly requires a compulsion for the reproduction of the political system. In the slavery contract, in particular, the terms of the contract require of the slave an ongoing self-negation of personhood, an acceptance of chattel status, psychologically harder to achieve and so potentially more explosive than the varieties of subpersonhood imposed either by the expropriation contract, uh, where one will either be dead or sequestered in a space far away from the white persons, or the colonial contract, where the status of minor leaves some hope that one may be permitted to achieve adulthood someday. Thus, in the Caribbean and on the mainland of the Americas, there were sites where newly arrived Africans were sometimes taken to be seasoned before being transported on the plantations. And this was basically the metaphysical operation carried out through the physical of breaking them, transforming them from persons into subpersons of the chattel variety. Uh, but since people could always fake acceptance of subpersonhood, it was, of course, necessary to keep an eternally vigilant eye on them for possible signs of dissembling, in keeping with the sentiment that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. The coercive arms of the state, then, the police, the penal system, the army, need to be seen as, in part, the enforcers of the racial contract, working both to keep the peace and prevent crime among the white citizens and to maintain the racial order and detect and destroy challenges to it, so that across the white settler states, non-whites are incarcerated at differential rates and for longer terms. To understand the long, bloody history of police brutality against black in the United States, for example, one has to recognize it is not as an excess by individual racists, but as an organic part of this political enterprise. There is a well-known perception in the black community that police, particularly in the Jim Crow days of segregation and largely white police forces, were basically an army of occupation. And this is, you know, this ties in with people talking about the uh, abolition of police. They're, what they're talking about is not that we don't need some sort of um, entity that ensures Safety, But what they are saying is that policing, the idea of policing in the U.S. was founded upon this racial contract in a way that is so obvious that if you are any sort of person that uh, has looked at the history of policing, you can't deny it. Whereas other parts of the racial contract, like Mills talks about, so that it can recreate itself, have been able to kind of like hide in the shadows or whatever. Whereas policing is just when it's based on that. When its core comes from that, um, it's really hard to, to remove that from its uh, from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, correspondingly in all these white and white ruled uh, polities. Correspondingly, in all these white and white ruled polities, acting, attacking, attacking 
or killing whites has always been morally and juridically singled out as the crime of crimes, a horrific break with the natural order, not merely because of the greater value of white, i.e. a person's life, but because of its larger symbolic significance as a challenge to the racial polity. The death penalty is differentially applied to non-whites both in the scope of crimes covered, i.e. racially differentiated penalties for the same crimes, and in its actual carrying out. In the history of U.S. capital punishment, for example, over 1,000 people have been executed, but only very rarely has a white been executed for killing a black. And that's super important, and it's, uh, it should not be overlooked. And it's just a, such a clear indicator of a systemic problem. Yes. Um, you know, there is no, uh, for all uh, of our centrists out there, there is no implying anywhere even that any of these executions were incorrectly carried out. I presume a lot of them were, but that's not the implication. The implication is that you will be executed for killing a white person, but not a black person. Um, not because jurors are racist or anything like that, but because the system itself assigns that punishment to black people, but not to white people. Uh, and you don't actually have to have a distinctly racist person involved for that to carry out, which is what everybody means when they're talking about systemic problems. You don't have to take individual blame for it. Totally. Totally. I totally agree. When we say that, we're not just talking to the centrists and the people on the right. We're also talking, unfortunately, to liberals and sometimes people on the left. We see stuff um, like uh, recently I pointed out that Cut video to you. This YouTube channel called Cut does a video. It's called What What Are White People Superior At? And they talk about white people are superior at um, smelling bad, being stupid, and being scared, and blah, blah, blah. And although some of the things they talk about exist in what I would call, uh, and what Mills calls, I think, uh, capital W, whiteness, to single out individuals and to say that individuals are like this totally misses the point. It is about systemic issues, right? So, individual acts of subperson violence against whites and even more serious slave rebellions and colonial uprisings are standardly punished in an exemplary way. Uh, what is this? Poor, uh, this is some, um, Latin. Some Latin, uh, or French, I'm not sure. Poor encourager les autres. <laughs> okay. Uh, which, uh, if you give me... Uh, a few moments in which I'm certainly not Googling it. Uh, I can tell you precisely what that means. Uh, Excellent. Just, Excellent. you know, uh, accessing my uh, extensive language databases um, uh, just takes a while to refresh. Oh, thankfully, uh, Google uh, popped that bad boy up. In order to encourage the others, but generally said ironically of an action such as an execution carried out as a warning to others. So, so uh, deterrence yeah. is what we're talking about, which for those of you that don't know, there's no evidence that shows that deterrence works. So, right, right. And if um, you can provide that, we'll look yep. at it for sure. I mean, don't send it to us. Send it to fucking, uh, <laughs> right. you know, fucking Nobel or whatever, yeah. you know. And, uh, and on a side yep. note, uh, Breitbart, Breitbart blog posts probably aren't going to uh, cut yeah. cut the evidence. Right. Uh, right, totally. All right. 
with torture and retaliatory mass killings far exceeding the number of white victims. Such acts have to be seen not as arbitrary, not as the product of individual sadism, though they encourage and provide an outlet for it, but as the appropriate moral and political response prescribed by the racial contract to a threat to a system predicated on non-white subpersonal. There is an outrage that is particularly metaphysical because one's self-conception, one's white identity as a superior being entitled to rule is under attack. And that's that's super key. You know, it is not, and we've kind of already touched on this, but it is not that these people that do these things are inherently bad people. Even even someone, I would I would go as far to say that even someone like I forget what they were called, but the, the like an overseer in the cotton fields that literally was in charge of seasoning slaves, right? Was literally in charge of whipping slaves. He is thinking of them the same way he thinks of the dog he beats, right? These are not people. These are beasts that do tasks, right? So we just need to keep that in mind. And it doesn't obviously excuse, it doesn't, I'm not saying that the system is moral. I'm saying that the immorality of the system doesn't necessarily uh, make the individuals in it evil people. Right, if the, I always mispronounce this word, but if the... Hegemony, yeah, yeah. That's I always right. want to say like hegemony. I don't know. Uh, if the hegemony you're in presents everything you're doing as morally sound and societally acceptable, you're not going to feel like a bad person for doing it. Is is kind of right. the deal, unless you happen to be extremely introspective or you have suffered through similar. Uh, like at that time, it would probably be hard to. Maybe not that hard, but uh, I imagine it would be harder to convince a person who is formerly uh, an indentured servant to be rocking slaves. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but you know that kind of a lot of people just don't have the perspective. If you've never been told something you're doing is wrong, and all of the people you respect and hold up as like you know your mentors and things of that nature, if they also don't see a problem with it. It takes what I would almost qualify as extraordinary steps to realize that you are doing something um, terrible. All right. So thus in the North and South American reactions to Native American resistance and slave uprisings in the European responses to the St. Domingo Haitian Revolution, Sepoy uprising, Indian mutiny, the Jamaican Morant Bay insurrection, the Boxer Rebellion in China, the struggle of the Hereros Her- Her- in, in German Africa in the 20th century colonial and neo-colonial wars, Ethiopia, Madagascar, Vietnam, Algeria, uh, Malaya, Kenya, Angola, M- Mozambique, damn it, um, uh, Guinea-Bissau, and Nambia. In the white settlers' battles to maintain a white Rhodesia and apartheid South Africa, one repeatedly sees the same pattern of systematic massacre. It is a pattern that confirms that the ontological uh, shudder has been sent through the system of the white polity, calling forth 
what could be called the white terror to make sure that the foundations of the moral and political universe stay in place, describing the shock to white America of the Sioux defeat of Custer's 7th Cavalry. One author writes, it was the kind of humiliating defeat that simply could not be be handed to a modern nation of 40 million people by a few scarecrow savages. Uh, V.G. Kernan comments on Haiti. No savagery that has been recorded on Africans anywhere could outdo some of the acts of the French in their efforts to regain control of the island. Of the Indian mutiny, he writes, after victory, there were savage reprisals. For the first time on such a scale, but not the last. The West was trying to quell the East by frightfulness. Some of the facts that have come down, some of the facts that have come down to us almost stagger belief, even after the horrors of Europe's own 20th century history. In general, then, watchfulness for non-white resistance and a corresponding readiness to employ massively disproportionate uh, retaliatory violence are intrinsic to the fabric of the racial polity in a way different from the response to the typical crimes of white citizens. But official state violence is not the only sanction of the racial contract. In the Lockean state of nature, in the absence of the constituted juridical and penal authority, natural law permits individuals themselves to punish wrongdoers. Those who show by their their actions that they lack or have renounced the reason of natural law and are like wild savage beasts with whom men have no society nor security may illicitly be destroyed but if in the racial polity non-whites may be regarded as inherently bestial and savage quite independently of what they happen to be doing at any particular moment then by extension they can be conceptualized in part as carrying the state of nature around with them, incarnating wildness and wilderness in their person. In effect, they can be regarded even in civil society as being potentially at the center of a mobile free fire zone in which citizen to citizen, white on white moral and juridical constraints do not obtain, particularly in frontier situations where official white authority is distant or unreliable. Individual whites may be regarded as endowed with the authority to enforce the racial contract themselves. Thus, in the United States paradigmatically, but also in the European settlement in Australia, in the colonial outposts in the quote-unquote bush or quote-unquote jungle of Asia and Africa, there is a long history of vigilantism and lynching at which white uh, officialdom basically convinced inasmuch as hardly anybody was ever punished, though the perpetrators were well known and on occasion were even available. And this is kind of the stuff that like makes it even harder for me to separate from like the Marxian critique of things, because while obviously the racial side of it was the justification, I feel like the motivation was capital or, you know, an expansion of capital, an expansion of money, uh, and things of that nature. And so I feel, uh, with my limited knowledge, that the two are so intertwined, that's what's hard for yep. me to separate them. 
you know, and I, I can maybe understand the argument that it might be easier to achieve a more satisfactory racial equality than to achieve communism. So maybe you don't want to tie them together so that if one fails, they both fail kind of deal, if that makes sense. I could almost understand that. But in my head, it's hard to separate out like how a capitalist society wouldn't require an exploited class. Right. Uh, okay. Um, where was I at, though? Oh, some lynchings were advertised days in advance and hundreds or thousands of people gathered from surrounding districts. In the North American or the Northern Territory of Australia, one government medical officer wrote in 1901, it was notorious that the black fellows were shot down like crows and that no notice was taken. Uh, the other dimension of this coercion is ideological. If the racial contract creates its signatories, those party to the contract by constructing them as white persons, it also tries to make its victims, the objects of the contract, into the non-white subpersons it specifies. This project requires labor at both ends, involving the, the development of a depersonalizing conceptual apparatus through which whites must learn to see non-whites and also, crucially, through which non-whites must learn to see themselves from the non-whites then this is something like the intellectual equivalent of the physical process of seasoning, slave breaking, the aim being to produce an entity who accepts subpersonhood. And once again, they didn't choose to have that done to them. The people who are in this and involved in it, um, and that's another thing, is it's like when people are talking about systemic racism, once again, I know we've said it the whole episode, but they're not mad at the individual. They're mad at the system that sets up uh, a place where this individual thrives. Like you are in a place where systemic racism exists, you are going to be much more successful if you accept that reality, whether it's inherently or you did it in the back of your head just to be individualistically successful or whatnot. So once again, it's not a good thing that people behave this way, but it is not an individual like you racist pieces of shit. How could you be like this? This is the explanation. Like There is a system that is doing these things, and we think the world would be a better place if this system wasn't yep. making decisions. You know, it just reminds me of people being like, oh, well, you know, if I lived back then, I, I would have been an abolitionist. It's like, dude, if you were in the right place at the right time, maybe. But uh, the majority of us, if you were born into a uh, wealthy white family in the South and you were a male, the chances of you not continuing your plantation is very unlikely. Or even the chances of you living uh, in a border state or something like that and having the time and money to assist with abolitionist things is yeah. unbelievably rare. It's, you know, it's it's like today. Dear God, do I wish I had more time and money uh, and, it, hell, even motivation uh, to fight for the things I believe in. Uh, but then, the uh, you know, to be real cliche or whatever, yeah. the real world kicks in. And I have honest, you know, like life-sustaining things I have to take care of and things of that nature. And then it's that knowledge that, like, yeah, the hegemony didn't really care that much about it. So you would have to be doing it mostly on like a completely you were a good enough person to have no self-service to do it you know like you're not you couldn't advertise you couldn't even like feel good about yourself by letting other people know what you were doing uh because you would be killed like it's yeah and, and i to the point where it's like the odds of me 
running part of the Underground yeah. Railroad or something uh, are about as large as the odds of me fucking strapping up uh, and going into the streets right now. Not that likely, unfortunately. I'm just not that right, exceptional totally. of a person. We're, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Frederick Douglass, in his famous first autobiography, describes uh, the need to darken the moral and mental vision and as far as possible to annihilate the power of reason of the slave. He must be able to de detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right, and he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man. Uh, originally denied education, blacks were later in the postbellum period given an education appropriate to the post-chattel status, the denial of a past, of history, of achievement, so that as far as possible they would accept their prescribed roles of servant and menial laborer, comic coons and sambos, grateful Uncle Toms and Aunt Jemimas. Thus, in one of the most famous books from the black American experience, Carter Woodson indicts the miseducation of the ne Negro. And as late as the 1950s, James Baldwin could declare that the separate but equal system of segregation has worked brilliantly, for it has allowed white people with scarcely any pangs of conscience whatsoever to create uh, in every generation only the Negro they wish to see. And uh, this reminds me of that famous... Uh, fucking um, Kanye West meltdown where he's talking about like, well, why, you know, they were slaves for 500 years, you know, they, they wanted to be slaves if they're going to be slaves for 500 years. And right. obviously there were tons of slave uprisings and we don't learn about those in school and we don't talk about them in our culture. So, so there was a lot more rebellion and ag agitation than one would think, but even still, even yeah. still, uh, Mills makes it very clear here, and, and others in the past have made it clear, and obviously Frederick Douglass and whoever else have made it clear, that the seasoning was essential to maintain the, the racial contract and slavery. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, kind of part, you know, I'm not saying this is like the main motivation. You know, a lot of documents, you know, first-person documents from that time period indicate that one of the problems was that Southern slave owners were getting more and more fearful of uprisings and were therefore turning to more and more brutal tactics uh, that were upsetting non-slave owners more and more to imply that slaves were just like, no, dude, we're happy to be slaves. This is what we want is uh, complete and, and utter nonsense, in my opinion. So uh, I'll just wrap her on up. But in the case of Native Americans, whose resistance was largely over by the 1870s, a policy of cultural assimilation was introduced under the slogan, Kill the Indian, but Save the Man, aimed at the suppression and eradication of Native religious beliefs and ceremonies, such as the Sioux Sundance. Just on a side note, yeah, the Native American re-education camps are unbelievably depressing and, and dark part of american history and uh just every bit as dystopian and disgusting uh, as i think anything in the human imagination can even conjure up aimed at the suppression and uh, kill the indian but save the man aimed at the su suppression and eradication of native religious beliefs and ceremonies such as the sioux sundance Similarly, a hundred years later, Daniel Kabixi, a Brazilian uh, Parisi Indian, sorry, I'm not familiar, uh, complains that the missions kill us from within. They impose upon us another religion, belittling the values we hold. The decharacteristics, uh, uh, the, this decharacterizes us to the point where we are ashamed to be Indians. 
I think that's really important because a lot of people point to mission work and stuff as good shit that the church does, uh, when in reality they're often going out there to destroy cultures of differing opinions. We're here to help you, but to get this help, uh, you're going to need to accept our religion. And we're also going to structure this help um, so that you won't be able to self-sustain without us. We're going to come in and undercut any economy you could possibly have and you know, build facilities that will eventually change the culture to require them. And if you want access to this shit, well, then you've got to admit your whole history was bullshit and that you just are so happy we came. Uh, the Mohawk scholar Jerry Gamble lists 21 ways to scalp an Indian. The first being, make him a non-person. Human rights are for people. Convince Indians their ancestors were savages, that they were pagan. Likewise, in the colonial enterprise, children in the Caribbean, Africa, and Asia were taught out of British or French or Dutch school books to see themselves as a spirit. Uh, but of course, never full colored Europeans, saved from the barbarities of their own cultures by colonial intervention. Duly reciting our ancestors, the Gauls, and growing up into adults with black skin, white masks. Australian Aborigine students write, Black is wronged at white schools, but righted by experience. Fuck. Uh, black is going to white school and coming home again, no wiser. Jesus. I cannot pronounce this name, uh, or do I even understand how to begin, but Nagugi Wa Thiango, um, sorry, describes from his experience in his native Kenya the cultural bomb of British imperialism, which prohibited learning in the oral tradition of Gikui. Um, sorry, and trained him and his schoolfellows to see themselves and their country through the alien eyes of H. Ryder Haggard and John Buchan. The effect of a cultural bomb is to annihilate a people's belief in their names, in their languages, in their environment, in their heritage of struggle, in their unity, in their capacities, and ultimately in themselves. It makes them see past uh, them see their past as one wasteland of non-achievement, and it makes them want to distance themselves from that wasteland. Racism has an ideology, needs to be understood, has aiming at the minds of non-whites, as well as whites, inculculating subjugation. Oh, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. I, I think it's inculcating. Inculcating. Thank you very much. Inculcating subjugation. If the social contract requires that all citizens and persons learn to respect themselves and each other, the racial contract prescribes non-white self-loathing and racial deference to white citizens. The ultimate triumph of this education is that it eventually becomes possible to characterize the racial contract as consensual and voluntaristic, even for non-white. That's so. That's so important, and that's that's where you know people yeah. like um, Candace yes, Owens. Candace Owens and fucking Ben Shapiro and all of these people. Um, and even even like, you know, some centrists are able to um, honestly think that the, that it's a consensual situation, that there is no, as uh, Charles W. Mills would describe it, there is no racial contract. Right. Obviously, Candace Owens is a good example. But if a large enough sample size, you can probably find it somebody who thinks anything. So at some point, yes, you were probably able to find former slaves who missed being a slave at some point. You can find black people who think that everything is a black person's fault. But we could we, we could say uh, from the reading we just did, uh, more likely than not, that was like from seasoning. 
where these yeah, people, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, fuck, yeah. honestly believed that they were sub subhuman uh, or sub persons and yeah. that they should be slaves, you know. Um, so you're absolutely yep. right. And and like, you know, Ibram X. Kendi says, uh, freaking uh, the ra- racist ideas are, are colorblind. You have to have yep. the quote unquote sub persons believe this shit as much, if not more than uh, the persons or the system falls apart. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because if they have any confidence in their abilities, yep. then obviously um, things don't go as well for the uh, oppressors. Yep. If you totally. Totally. Um, but shit, once again, uh, yeah, this book is just um, amazing. It's really too bad. It's not like a required reading. I know. Um, and more stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, I guess we just can't have any critical race theory anyway. Um, it's so dangerous because we just we got to love America, man. If you end up hating your country for the disgusting shit it did, you know, you could end up learning stuff, and that's fucking gross. And Yeah, just fucking Tim Pool's fucking uh, framing of critical race theory. I don't know. I, it would just be interesting. I would love for someone like him to read a book like this and be, and be able to come to me sincerely and say, yeah, that book's about hate. That book is about hating right. white people. You know, it's about... Uh, was fucking uh, Tim say like neo segregation? That book wants to create neo segregation. Right. It's like, oh my god, dude, fuck off. On a side note, uh, Tim Pool, fly us out. We would love to talk to you. Yeah, seriously. Plus, we'll bring our skateboards, so we could probably even have a good time. We could definitely have a good time. Yeah, we could definitely uh, have a good time. Fucking, we are finished with details, which was chapter two of uh, the racial contract by Charles W. Mills. Next time, we're on to chapter three in quotes naturalized merits, and uh, we look forward to it. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Critical race theory is neo segregationist. It's, it's, it's over. Can you describe to me what critical race theory is? So. In layman's terms, I'm not, I don't have the academic def- definition up uh, pulled pull up for you, but specifically like uh, privilege plus power, whiteness, minorities, white uh, traits of whiteness would be specifically like hard work, scheduling. I'll tell, you, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, the tenets of critical race theory, though I've definitely done segments on the over academic definition of it. I don't have it pulled up. But when they put out a, a list that says whiteness, uh, they, they say things like down with whiteness, um, traits of whiteness include schedules, hard work, planning for the future, 2.5 kids, and all of those things. 